Lord, good to be here, thankful to be here. I just keep thinking of that, that psalm. I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. Refresh us, encourage us through your word tonight. You teach, we listen, Lord, in your name. Amen. I was quite surprised. I went back and looked to see when we started our study in the book of Mark. And we started our study in the book of Mark, not this Wednesday by the calendar, but by last Wednesday of last year. So we've been in the book of Mark for a year. I had no idea. I thought I started it this summer. I was really proud of myself for getting through the book fairly quick. Thank you for putting up with me for 20 plus years on Wednesday nights. I had no idea. So, um, Lord willing, time willing, we're finishing up Mark tonight. This is one of those lessons where I would really love, I would really love to break this down and I could spend weeks on this stuff. But I always go back to this example that I've heard. A flower is only beautiful when it's looked at in its full picture. If you dissect a flower, you lose its beauty. This is one of those chapters that if we break this down too much, we lose the flow of it. And I don't want to lose the flow of this. We're going to pick it up in verse 42 after Christ died. And we're going to do 42, finish up 15, and do chapter 16 and get the whole theme. Now that means in chapter 16, remember Mark's writing style is very abrupt compared to the other Gospels. If you go read John or Luke or Matthew, you see a lot more details. We talked about this way back in our first couple studies in the book of Mark. It's a much quicker Gospel, without a lot of detail in some ways. It's almost like, hey, here are the facts. You see that a lot in chapter 16, is that there's a lot of stories that he tells that other Gospel accounts go into deeper. And I'll give you the references so you can go study that out yourself and pray through it. But it kind of does a nice quick overview, and I want to keep that flow here tonight. So if you're kind of looking at some stuff saying, boy, I think there's more to it, there probably is. But to get the full flow of this, I want to make sure that we can cover this all tonight. So hopefully, Lord willing, time willing, we'll be finishing up the book of Mark tonight. And it's always exciting to finish a book. So, Mark 15, verse 42. Now, when evening had come because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Hoses observed where he was laid. Now, if you weren't with us, this sounds a bit abrupt, but we've spent the last two weeks covering the idea of Christ on the cross. We've talked about the practical stuff that happened to him on the cross and also the theological stuff. So we left off last week with Christ's final sayings on the cross, and Father, into my hands, into your hands I commit my spirit, and we talked about what his death means and represents. So here we are now, and Christ was on the cross, it was darkness here from noon to three, so now we're into the afternoon of the day that he died, and evening is coming. Now the law says you can't leave them hanging like that, and even the Jews believe that criminals should have some type of burial, but here's Christ on the cross dead, dead. What's going to happen? Who's going to come? This guy comes out of nowhere, Joseph of Arimathea. It's the preparation day, the day before the Sabbath here, so it looks like a Friday. And he comes and he says, I'll take the body. That's huge. Now I want you to understand why this is such a big deal. Think of the risks involved in coming and asking for the body of Christ. Number one, Jesus was a convicted criminal. He was put to death. And here's a guy now that just a few hours after his death comes and says, I'll take his body. 
All the disciples have fled. This takes a lot of guts to go do this. Number two, he is a member of the Sanhedrin, of the council there. We see that in verse 43. He's putting his relationship and his religious relationship really on thin ice with this. Now, we know from the other gospel accounts that he did not consent to it. When the Sanhedrin voted to put Jesus to death, he did not agree to this. We know that account from Luke. But he still took courage to go do this. Number three, and this one may not sound like a big deal to you, but you have to think like a Jew here for a second. This is the Passover. This is a huge feast. And we're going to go into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He is defiling himself by going and taking a body off the cross. So that is a huge religious thing for him to say, I'm going to go touch this dead body, and according to the law now, I cannot go do the Passover, and I cannot go celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread because I am now considered unclean by touching this body. So by Joseph going and doing this, understand the depth of this. He's putting his life on the line. He's putting his relationship with the Sanhedrin on the line. He's putting his own religious relationship. He's going to be defiled for the Passover, and he's going and doing this. Why? Well, there's a couple reasons why. First off, it's actually fulfilled prophecy. You don't have to turn there. By Isaiah 53, 9, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Joseph was a very rich man. Joseph is interesting because we know from all the gospel accounts, each gospel account gives a different description of him. We know from Mark's account right here that he was a prominent, respected member of the Sanhedrin verse 43. Matthew's account, we know he was rich. Luke's account, he was known as good, just, righteous, upright. And John's account, he was secret disciple. Can you go with me now to John 19? John 19. What a description of Joseph of Arimathea. He obviously was a rich man, we know. He had his own grave, which would have been a lot, folks, back then. Had his own grave that he gave up his own tomb grave here for Jesus. Prominent member, respected member of the council, good, just, righteous, upright. But it's the secret disciple thing that kind of gets me. John 19, verse 38. Now after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. Mark's account says that he took courage. Secret disciple. Now, this doesn't mean secret disciple like Jesus says, hey, Joseph, don't tell anybody. This is like Joseph really respected what Christ said. Joseph really followed what Christ said. But Joseph didn't have enough guts to go out and do that. I appreciate the honesty of the Bible. Because the reality is you have Peter saying, I'll never leave you nor deny you. And guess where Peter's at right now? He's hiding. We know from the other gospel accounts that the 11 living disciples went into a room, locked the door, and hid. Yeah, the guys that end up writing the rest of the New Testament go into a door and hide. You got Joseph that comes up. and mad, I mean, I, I, I don't want to belittle this point by keep repeating it, but imagine the guts it took to do this. To go to the Roman governor who just killed three people and said, I want Christ's body. He's, he's putting everything on the line there. I read in one of the commentators this great little saying, the cross turns cowards into heroes. Boy, isn't that the truth? The cross turns cowards into he heroes. I am so scared and nervous sometimes to go share the gospel. I am so scared and nervous sometimes with church things to go take that stand. 
But then I stop, I think about eternity, I think about the Lord, and I think about what he did, and I stop and I realize, James, you just got to suck it up and go, man. It's the power of God, it's not you. Because my flesh would probably never share the gospel with anybody. I would probably chicken out on everything. I'd be a coward on a lot of stuff. And there's times that I'm just sitting there in my mind, I'm praying one word, boldness, boldness, boldness. Lord, just let me do this. And I think of Joseph of Arimathea taking courage and going and doing this. So I just want to encourage you here tonight. You're here tonight, so you're boldly proclaiming that you're at least wanting to follow Jesus Christ. You came out on a Wednesday night in the dark and it's cold. Thank you. I want to encourage you, though, at family get-togethers here in the next couple weeks. I want to encourage you at school, and I want to encourage you at home, and I want to encourage you at work to not be a secret disciple. Let Joseph of Arimathea encourage you. Take courage. Take a stand. Go represent Christ. Think about what Christ did for us, for us now to go take that boldness and go stand for him. Verse 39, And Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Nicodemus comes back on the scene. Nicodemus is mentioned three times in the Scriptures. The first time is in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus is probably most famous for John chapter 3. He comes to Jesus at night. My personal opinion, personal opinion, is he comes at night because he's nervous, he's scared to be seen with Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and he starts buttering him up and says, Jesus, we know you're a great teacher. And Jesus looks at him in John 3, verse 3 and says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And that's where you get the great verse of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. It comes from the story of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus kind of just disappears. But then he's mentioned again in John chapter 7. And what happens is the Jews are debating Jesus. And you see Nicodemus take a little stand in John chapter 7. He kind of asks a question saying, should we really be doing this? And then now you see him here in John 19 boldly saying, I'm going to go do this. He is also defiling himself. Now, I don't want to go into detail for the sake of gore. Think about what Christ's body looks like at this point. If you've ever been around death before, you know how quickly the body just quits looking like a body. Jesus' face is, is mutilated, his back is mutilated, his whole body is mutilated. The Bible says in Isaiah that he was marred more than any other man. And it was very common for the Jews at this point, they did not embalm their dead, that they would probably come and wash the body up, clean the body up. And you see him in 39 talking about this mixture of myrrhs and alloys and wrapping. And it was a very process to wrap the body and you could put layers in and do this because since the body would decompose so quickly, it was considered just very polite that you'd put these alloys and stuff in there to make it smell good. Two grown men are doing this. And I don't mean this in a weird way. I've thought about this a lot. Do you, do you realize, and it, and it gets to me sometimes, Somebody had to pry the nails out. I mean, come on, folks. If anybody's ever worked on anything before, prying a nail out? Somebody has to pull a nail out of Christ's wrists. Somebody has to pull a nail out from between his, his feet. Somebody has to carry a dead body covered in blood. And if his back's laid open like that, you may even be seeing bones and inner organs. It is just, his, his face is matted in with blood. His beard has been pulled out. I mean, this is... A disgusting job. And here's Joseph and Nicodemus saying, we want to do this. 40. Then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices as is the custom of the Jews is to bury. 
Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden in the garden, a new tomb which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. Please, please, learn to meditate on the scriptures. And I just want you to chew on Joseph and Nicodemus here for the next few days. I don't know if these guys get enough credit. For, for the boldness, the courage, and what they did to go ask for the body, and what they actually did. They're the ones that buried the Messiah. I mean, were they thinking about it as they're, as they're doing this? I mean, was it starting to hit them that this was my sin that caused this? As they're pulling the spikes out of the cross, are they starting to think, I did this? I did this. Man, I just think those guys are amazing guys, and it's just something neat to chew on, to stop and say, Lord, help us to understand the depth of this, the depth of it. Verse 47, now back in Mark 15. 47 sets us up then for what we would call Resurrection Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Verse 1 of 16, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Now we need to stop right here for a second. I heard a commentator say this one time, that that Saturday is the quietest day in the Bible. Have you ever thought about that? Nothing is said about Saturday. you got Friday, the burial. We obviously got Sunday. I love to call it Resurrection Sunday. You know, most people call it Easter, but Resurrection Sunday. That Saturday is a day of just complete, utter silence. We, we don't really know what goes on. I mean, we know they're mourning and weeping. We know that they are so full of sorrow, because look at verse 2. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, Sunday, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were coming because they were full of sorrow. We talk about this every resurrection Sunday morning, every sunrise service. They were not going to the tomb because they were excited to see the tomb being empty. They were going full of sorrow and sadness. Now we have to stop right now for a second. You ever thought about why? I mean, why, why the three days? Why, why this? I mean, Jesus could have died on the cross and said, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit, and just kind of ascended right there off the cross. You know, I think there's a few reasons why. One of them, and I don't ever want to downplay this, it's fulfilled prophecy. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the center of the earth. So it's fulfilled prophecy right there. So we have to fulfill prophecy. Number two, it shows he's dead. I mean, if you remember correctly, in what we just read in Mark 15, it says that Pilate, verse 44, summing the centurion, asked him if he had been dead for some time. This centurion has got to be pretty battle-hardened. How many crucifixions has this centurion seen? This centurion probably knows what a dead body looks like. And Joseph is handling this body. Nicodemus is handling this body. There are people that are handling this body that says, yeah, this guy's dead. And it's just silly and absurd all the supposed theories that could have, should have, maybe would have happened. Three days, he's dead. You don't fake that for three days. You don't pass out for three days. You don't swoon for three days. You're dead. The three days show here that Christ was dead. It fulfills prophecy. It proves this, that physical death actually happened. But now on Sunday morning... These three ladies, verse 1, Mary Magdalene, this is the woman that had the seven demons cast out. You have Mary, this would be the mom of James the Lesser. 
And then you have Salome. This would be the mother of James and John. They're all showing up very early in the morning, verse 3. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Different estimates, but the stone could have been anywhere from 2,000 to 2,500 pounds. The way these stones were, what we can figure out is this. There's like a little channel that would be in front of this open hole of this kind of cave where they would put the bodies. And this big stone was put up a little higher. And it had like a wedge under it so the stone couldn't roll. Well, when you buried somebody in there to show the permanency of it, you'd remove that wedge and that stone would roll down that little channel into a little rut. It's not going anywhere. So there it is in front of it. Now, we know from the other gospel accounts that the Jews were so concerned about the disciples coming and doing something with the body, they put a Roman guard in front of it. We don't know how many for sure. The wording is interesting. Could be anywhere from four to 16 Roman soldiers. And they put the seal on it, meaning that it basically is what we would call a police line, do not cross type thing. So you have this huge stone. You have a Roman guard. You can't mess with it. And they're still coming to the tomb. Why? This is not victory. This is sorrow. If you've ever seen somebody just full of sorrow, you're not thinking things through clearly. They're not planning this. They're not thinking this through. They just know that Jesus died. I want to stress this point again. They're not coming out of victory. They're coming out of defeat. They're coming out of defeat here. So they show up, verse 4, but when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. The Bible's trying to stress to you that. Verse 5, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. We know from the other gospel accounts this was an angel. Verse 6, He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. That word for see in verse 6 is interesting. It means look around. We would maybe say, check this out. Like, come look. He's not here. We're not hiding him anywhere. Investigate this. Verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him, so they said to you, as he said to you. I think it's interesting in verse 7 that Peter is called out. God is so faithful, God is so forgiving, God is so merciful. Peter is called out. The Peter that was full of bravado that said, I will never deny you, never leave you, does it three times. Peter is called out specifically to say, Hey, Jesus won. I love that. So on my days of defeat, and I just look at myself in the spiritual mirror of life and say I'm a complete, utter failure. God says I know. And I still love you. I love that. I had something recently where I just really completely, utterly dropped the ball. And I was struggling with it. And I just, just was really sort of kicking myself. I said, you know, I can't believe I fell into that. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. And, I, and it really hit me of all the times I've ever said from the pulpit, Who's the only person surprised when we sin? We are. I was surprised I sinned. I can't believe I did that. God knew, and he still loves me. Peter was so surprised that he fell and denied that he quits and goes back to fishing. And I think it's important that we note here in verse 7 that Jesus says, I'm calling you out, Peter, to come get you. I want to restore you. We know from John's account that they have this wonderful conversation on the beach where God restores Peter, and Peter then becomes this bold man. You see it in the book of Acts. So, just think this through for a second. Empty tomb, stone moved, Roman soldiers gone. Um, Verse 8, what would you do with all this information? You saw an angel, so they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing (laughs) to anyone, for they were afraid. That's not a great verse on evangelism there, is it? They said nothing. 
Sad to say, in 2,000 years, that's kind of the still same motive we have. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's overwhelming. I mean, it really is completely overwhelming when it says they were afraid and they were trembling and they were amazed. These are some interesting words in the original language. I heard one commentator say, we would basically say in our vernacular today, they freaked out. It's overwhelming. You're going in sorrow and sadness. And you get there and the stone is moved. There's an angel. The body's gone. He's risen. The senses can't handle it. So they go and they say nothing. We'll come back to that here in a little bit. Let's pause real quick. Let's catch our breaths. Like I said, we're going at a quick pace here because I want to make sure we get the full thing covered. Any quick questions about anything here? Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, the ladies at the tomb on Resurrection Sunday here, the resurrection part of it before we get on to the rest of this. We're all good? Okay. Verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week... He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had seen by her, they did not believe. Once again here, look at the honesty of the Bible. Now, to put yourself in this position, put yourself in position here for a second. I don't mean to be crass when I say this. Imagine that we all have somebody we love, and they die a tragic death. And we're just all full of sorrow and sadness. And somebody goes to the cemetery and they say, it's empty. Hole's been dug up, the the coffin's empty, and an angel appeared and said they rose from the dead. They come back and tell you, are you going to believe them? No, you wouldn't believe them. I wouldn't believe them. These guys here are struggling with not believing. Now, this is hard for us. Because we sit here and we pick on them and we say, you saw the dead raised. You, you saw the demons cast out. You saw them walk on water. You saw the feeding of the five thousand. You saw all this. But the reality is they also saw this guy beat to a bloody pulp and killed. And I, and I tell you, it's easy to pick on them, but at the same time, it's easy to stop and say, Lord, my own faith falters. I mean, I've seen God do amazing things. I got saved in 93 so I've been walking with the Lord, you know, 26 years. I have seen God do amazing things. And I still have moments where it's like, yeah, not them, Lord. I mean, Lord, I know you can save anybody, but not them. Lord, I know you can heal marriages, but not that one. I mean, Lord, I know you can heal physically, but th- this, this, this is bad, Lord. This is really bad. How often, verse 11, do I not believe? You know, that's why I think it's so important. One of the, my favorite prayers in the Bible was where the honest father looked at Jesus and said, Lord, help my unbelief. What an honest prayer to pray. I want to encourage you here tonight. If you have something that you're struggling with believing God can move mountains on, Lord, help my unbelief. If you're stopping and saying, nope, this this marriage is past the point of restoration, Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, he'll never get saved. Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, I'll never be able to have pain-free days again. Lord, help my unbelief. Just be careful with our faith. We were going through devotions with boys the other day and that great verse about the faith of a mustard seed. I mean, if you've never seen a mustard seed, how absolutely tiny. God's saying, just, just give me a little bit of faith here and you can do amazing things. So as we like to pick on these guys, we also have to realize sometimes we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have 66 books of the Bible. And I still sometimes say, Lord, I don't know. 
Lord, help our unbelief. 12. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. This is a fun story. And if we had more time, it would be great to get into it. This is from Luke 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, where they sit and talk with Jesus and walk with Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus explained to them from Moses on all about him. And and I love it. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is from Luke 24 where they said, Did not our heart burn within us when he opened up the word to us? What makes your heart burn? God's word. I am not putting down fellowship. I'm not putting down evangelism. I'm not putting down worship. But what makes your heart burn is God's word. Worship is amazing. But remember, worship's not about you. It's about the Lord. We turn worship into about us. Our musical style is what we like. That's about God getting the glory. Evangelism is not about me feeling good. It's about is that person saved or not? You know, God's word, though, makes our heart burn for more. And I want to encourage you here now tonight. This is the third encouragement. If your heart's not burning for the Lord, maybe you need to get into the word. And as you get into the word, it will burn. It will. It may not burn that first day. It may not burn that next day, but you'll find yourself desiring it more. I know from personal experience, and I know from talking to other people, when you make this a priority... It makes you burn for more. Here's the catch. When you don't make it a priority, your heart does not burn for it. It's just the truth. When you decide God's word is vitally important to you, and Lord, I want to be in your word, know your word, it does not return void, and it's powerful and alive and active, it will burn. It truly will. We know that, we see that. I want to throw this little point out here, though. This is really interesting in verse 12. Why didn't they recognize Jesus? Look at verse 12. He appeared in another form. Oh, that's fun to chew on. Don't talk about it because we don't have an answer. I don't know what it means. I don't know. I don't know if it means that he blinded their eyes. I don't know if he looked like somebody else. I don't know. But it's a really interesting phrase that it means exactly what it says. He, He looked different. He appeared in another form to them. I don't know. But that's kind of a fascinating little thing. Verse 14, later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. We know from the other gospel accounts, locked room, shut door, fearful. Jesus comes right through the door. And look what he does in 14. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. An ongoing theme through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, God does not like unbelief. He does not. If you get to some of the Psalms, I think it's right around Psalm 105, there's some pretty straightforward Psalms where he tells Israel, because you did not believe what I could do in the wilderness, I judged you. God hates it when we don't believe. Remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By faith, we are greatly rewarded when we believe. So when you come and you're asking for prayer and you're like, hey, can you pray for this? And I'm like, hey, what do you think the Lord's going to do? I don't think he's going to do anything. You just lost your reward. To be honest, you just displeased God. I've had people say, I say, hey, can I pray for you? Go ahead. I don't know what difference it's going to make. Man, right there, I'm getting a glimpse into your heart. Folks, that's dangerous. It's dangerous when you've reached the point of apathetic prayer where you stop and say, I don't even know what difference it makes anymore. I don't care. I'm done, I give up. Be careful. that Christ shows up in 14, 
rebukes their unbelief and hardness of heart. He got in there and he said to them, you're wrong. You're wrong. The testimony of the women, yeah, you didn't care about that. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, you didn't care about that. We know from the other gospel accounts that John and Peter themselves went to the tomb. That wasn't enough. He rebukes them. To be quite honest, sometimes the most loving thing that God can do to me is rebuke me. And say, James, if you love me, you should act different. It's not that my actions are saving me. I want to make that abundantly clear. But if I love him, I should believe him. I should trust that he's going to move mountains. I should believe him. So he rebukes them. Then he tells them in verse 15, he said to them, go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. All right, there's your marching orders, folks. When that verse is completed, then you can sit back and say, I have nothing else to do for the Lord. Go. Now, does that mean you need to move to Africa? If the Lord's stirring you, then move to Africa. No, but it means you need to talk to your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors, your family members, the people at Walmart. Maybe the Lord's stirring you to go support somebody who's ministering in Africa. But the world needs to hear. Go means go. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to preach. Preach means proclaim. Before you think preach means I'm supposed to sit there for a half hour, no, preach just means let me tell you about what God has done in my life. Let me tell you about what the Lord is doing. Let me tell you about how Jesus saved me. You know, a few years ago, we had some people come out and kind of help us with evangelism. And one of the things they really encouraged is this idea of your one-minute testimony. People will listen to you for about a minute. To be quite honest, if we kind of ramble on past a minute when it comes to that, people start to tune out a little bit. Learn to be able to share the gospel, prayed up, spirit-led, quickly, efficiently, and effectively. Hey, you may only have 30 seconds to that person in that store. Here, let me tell you what the Lord's done for me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Boom, there it is. Sometimes you just pray and practice that. Go into all the world, preach, proclaim the gospel. Gospel, good news, good tidings. Please, don't, don't think I'm, I'm downplaying this point. We believe that somebody died and rose again and defeated death. That's pretty amazing news, folks. That's more important than talking about the weather and Christmas and sports and politics. Think about that the next time we have a meaningless, pointless conversation with somebody about weather, sports, and politics, and then all that other junk. We know somebody that died and defeated death, and we know that person that we're talking to is going to die. Now, I, I can't pep rally you into sharing the gospel. Either you want to or you don't. Those that have been most touched by the gospel want to share the gospel. If, if, if sharing the gospel is not really heavy on your heart, I ask you just to stop and pray saying, Lord, let me understand what it means that I have been saved and I've been pulled out of hell and I'm going into heaven and every sin I've committed has been forgiven. And Lord, let me understand that deeply so I can go tell other people. Now, there's a lot of excuses to that and tonight's not the message to take care of excuses. But if God's called you, He'll proclaim it. He'll boldly do it. If it's something that makes you nervous, we have tracks back there to my left, a great little turnaround display. Go grab some. Keep them in your wallet. Keep them in your purse. Hand them out to people. Give them to the cashier. Leave them for the waitress. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but I just want to encourage you, pray to have that heart to share the gospel. Because why 16? He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. 
The reality is there's a heaven and there's a hell. And so therefore, I don't want to see anybody condemned. I want to see people believe and be baptized and be saved. Now, if you're, if you're quick, you're going to look at 16 and say, wait a second, believes and is baptized will be saved. Are we teaching salvation by baptism? That's not what the Bible is teaching in any way whatsoever because look at the second part of verse 16. He who does not believe will be condemned. What bases your entrance into heaven or hell? It bases on your belief. Not on baptism, your belief. Well, then why does it say he who believes and is baptized will be saved? Baptism is a very, very important part of your walk with Christ. But it's not necessary for salvation. We know it's not necessary for salvation for a few reasons here. Let's just knock them down real quick. Number one, Jesus never baptized anybody. In fact, the Bible makes it clear he didn't baptize anybody. If baptism was salvation, don't you think Jesus would have baptized people? Number two, Paul says in Corinthians, he goes, I wish I would have baptized none of you. Because Paul knew that baptism wasn't salvation. Number three, we just talked about the thief on the cross. He wasn't baptized. So we can go down and you can say, well, you know what I read in Acts about believing and baptizing and saved. I see this. Yes, I believe that baptism should be a key part of your walk in relationship with Christ. And I believe that if you do believe, you should go get baptized as soon as you can. I do believe that. It's not for salvation. It's to show obedience. Think about this. Think about it. When you get saved, you're saying, God, you are my God, you are my Lord, and you are everything to me, and I give you my life. That's what the word believe means. Please understand what the word believe means. Believe does not mean acknowledge that God exists. We, we think that's what it is. We'll talk about somebody like, hey, are they saved? Well, they believe in God. And I always think of that verse in James, that even the demons believe in God. Satan believes in God. This word believe is a very, very deep word. Do not oversimplify the word believe in verse 16. It means that you believe this so much, you place your entire life and trust and faith in this concept and this idea. I believe in a lot of things. I'm not going to die for them. I'm not going to study them. I'm not going to devote my life to them. But I believe in them. I believe in you guys. But I'm not going to follow you. This word is a deep word, and understand it means more than just merely acknowledging the existence of God. It means placing your life and faith and trust in him. So if I believe, why would I not want to be baptized? Isn't that fascinating? The first thing Jesus asks you to do after getting saved is go jump in water. You ever thought that through? He could have asked you to do it. He doesn't ask you for money. He doesn't ask you to change your name. He doesn't ask you to go become a monk and live on a hill. He says, go get in water. Why? The symbolism is absolutely amazing. See, I can tell you, I can stand up here and say, I'm saved. You don't see any difference. I don't start glowing. I don't start floating. But when I tell you I'm saved and I get baptized, I give you a visible representation of what just happened to me. I go get in water, which represents being washed for my sins. I go under the water, which represents going into the grave. I come out of the water, which represents newness of life. And as Rich always likes to say, you come out looking like a drowned rat, which teaches you humbleness in front of people. That's a visible representation. And I think it's really interesting that God says, I want you to get baptized right after you get saved. Because it shows obedience. How can I call him Lord? And then he says, hey, go get baptized. I, oh, sure, sounds good, God, I'll think about it. This, I just want to encourage you guys with this. I've been doing this for a long time. Some people don't understand the importance of baptism. They just, they don't get it. I just want to encourage you. 
If, if you have never been baptized, maybe it's time to take that public step and confess that to the Lord. You may say, you know, but James, I'm a believer. I'm a born-again believer, and I'm proud of it, and I proclaim it. Amen. But there's something about this idea of saying, I'm going to go visibly represent this in baptism. It's commanded in Scripture. And you see it so tied in to salvation. It's not salvation, but you see it in one breath because from the writers through the Holy Spirit, it is so understanding that it's believe and baptized because that's the visible representation. It really showed a changing of going from the old life to the new. And it was a way of saying, I'm leaving behind Judaism and following Christ. Uh, we were reading one time in a devotional about um, baptism. I believe it was over in China. And it was done underground. But they kind of asked the same questions. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe he died? You know, they go through these questions. Kind of like, you know, we ask people before they get baptized. You know, are you ready to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? They asked a question that we don't ask here. They asked at the end, they said, and are you willing to die for this faith? Because it's a whole other world over there. A whole other world. If somebody would come forward tonight to get saved, I doubt the first thing they're thinking is, oh my, I'm putting my life on the line. But that baptism shows a whole different type of commitment. Verse 17, And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. That happened in the book of Acts. They will speak with new tongues. That happened in the book of Acts. Take up serpents. That happened in the book of Acts. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. That is not recorded in the book of Acts. Church tradition. Be careful with church tradition. It's not Bible. Careful church tradition. That happened to John. They will lay hands on the sick. That happened in the book of Acts. And they will recover. That happened in the book of Acts. Nowhere. And I don't know how anybody could look through these verses and say, Hey, this is what I need to do now to prove my faith. It is absolutely absurd that people under the, the banner of Christ still do some of this crazy stuff with snakes. And it's not a joke. They still do. I don't understand that. I don't get that. The whole point is this concept. It, it takes us to 19. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That's amazing to think about. It was so amazing in the book of Acts that when they saw it happen, the angels appeared to him and basically told them, I'm paraphrasing here, hey guys, get back to work. Because they were just standing there watching it. It's like you didn't want the movie to end. 20. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Verse 20 is important. Please note the order in verse 20. Word, then signs. Don't chase signs. Chase the word. Too many denominations, too many religious institutions push the word to the side and they only chase signs. They want a little spiritual pep rally all the time. Signs, 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 and wonders. According to 20, you confirm the word. The word is the vitalness. The word is the important of it. And if we had time, I would take you through the epistles where it says it's all about the word. Now, the problem with that is, what's more exciting? Listening to me for 45 minutes on a Wednesday night or 45 minutes of signs and wonders. I love it when people can advertise signs and wonders. I just saw a church advertise a healing service coming up. I think that's mind-blowing. They know the Holy Spirit's going to move Friday at 7. I just find that absolutely amazing. Careful with chasing signs. It's not biblical. Chase the word. And if you chase the word, guess what? Signs and wonders follow because you're putting the word first. That's the way it's supposed to be. 8 o'clock, I had a lot to cover tonight. 
But I want to make sure we cover this because this is a chapter that we do not want to break up into bits and pieces. We want to get the full context of it in all ways and all things. Any final questions about anything here before we close up with the uh, word of prayer? I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Yeah, John. Mm. If I remember correctly, and I'm going by memory here, so be careful, I believe that word for tongues in 17s is that word glossia, which means tongues, it means languages, etc. But at the same time, what you're saying out of what we just read in Colossians from Sunday was put away filthy language. It's the same concept. When we as believers get saved, out of the mouth proceeds the thoughts and intents of the heart. I hope we do speak differently. That is speaking differently, though. That is true. Somebody else had a hand up, too, I thought. Yeah, Mark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I don't disagree with that. Yeah, I was going with the context that I hope that we're reading it to see what the Lord has to say. I mean, I can listen, to, I can look at my kids. They can sit there and look at me and hear my words. Doesn't mean they're listening to what I say, but they hear my words. No, I believe you're, I understand what you're saying, and I don't disagree with that. We have to go in with the heart that wants to hear, learn, grasp, and understand. Because, you know, here at this Christmas season, I, I, I love the Christmas season, and I always have to throw out this, this, this disclaimer. No, I do not think Jesus was born on December 25th, but I believe it is vitally important to understand his birth and his coming and what a great time to celebrate. But I hear all these, these amazing, biblical, Jesus-glorifying lyrics, and people are singing them, and it's like, they don't even get it. They don't even get it. So I understand what you're saying, too. You can read the Word, and it does not impact you in any way whatsoever. Yes, we want to make sure it's the Holy Spirit leading, the Holy Spirit guiding, the Holy Spirit doing the burning. And if that's something that is not happening in your personal prayer life, devotional life, I highly encourage you to pray before you get in the Word. As it says in the book of Psalms, open my eyes, Lord. Yeah, John. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That and what you just quoted there was uh, 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. That's what it is. You can read this book. I mean, you, you could read this book from cover to cover, and if you're not doing it to understand, grow, depth, whatever, it's just any other book to you. So it is. It is vitally important to make sure it understood that it is the Holy Spirit speaking through this, living through this, and having a heart that's open to that. I think you said something else you said, Mark. Yeah. Okay.
Yeah, I'm not downplaying the signs. I'm downplaying the people that are putting the Lord God to the test. The people that are saying, hey, I'm going to prove my faith. I'm going to prove my depth and relationship with the Lord by taking poisonous stakes and passing them around. You hear about churches saying, we are going to go drink this just to prove something. To me, those signs there that you see are when an active believer is going out, being led by the Holy Spirit, and going out and representing Christ. These things will be there, and that will happen. But to say that we're going to go do this on purpose to prove something, I think that is a dangerous thing, which I do not think is scriptural. I'm not putting down signs and wonders in any way whatsoever. I just think we need to make sure that we have to be careful, as it says in Corinthians, the Greeks seek after wisdom, and the Jews seek after signs. And I just think we got to be careful that we don't turn our relationship with into Christ into saying, let's see this now, let's see this, and let's more exciting, more whatever. If you are in the Word, letting the Spirit lead you, guiding you and directing you, you're going to see amazing things. Because that is just the byproduct of a born-again relationship with Christ. The context that I was talking about was people saying, I'm going to go do these things on purpose to test, to push, whatever. And I think we got to be careful with that. we got to be careful that we start turning things into a sideshow when really the focus is the Word. And as you get in the word, these signs will be there. It says in verse 20, confirming the word through the accompanying signs, the signs will be there. And there's no doubt about that. The Holy Spirit will move in many different ways. And I'm sure all of you can share testimonies in some ways or another of just what God has done. It happens. It just absolutely happens. But we got to remember what it says in the New Testament about the foundation. The foundation is the teaching and preaching of God's word, the Bible says. So get the foundation laid, and then you'll see all these things happen afterwards. But that is the foundational thing. All right, wait, we got to go here. It's almost 10 after 8. Would you guys stand with me, please? Let's pray. Lord, what a great book. What a great study. I, I just pray we'd go preach. As your spirit leads, go preach. And Lord, Grant us a heart for your word, a heart, Lord, to go deeper in you, a heart to see you move. You know, we, we talked about that idea of signs there, Lord. You move in ways that we can't even imagine. And, Lord, we just seek you out to see you glorified, Lord, to go preach the gospel to every creature under heaven, Lord, for your glory. Thank you. And, Lord, here we are two weeks away from Christmas. Let it be about you. Let it be about you in all ways and all things. We thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Don't forget, if you want to do bell ringing, contact Liz. And last day to sign up for the angel tree. You guys have a good week and God bless.